0: Tonight is part two of our uh, fresh look at hell. It was funny, when I put the title up on uh, the PowerPoint last week, yeah, I just didn't actually think about the fact that it would be on YouTube as well and on Facebook. And so it was fun. I, I ended up getting some comments from some friends about the Welcome to Hell title. <laughs> but it worked out okay. So... Anyway, this was supposed to just be like that, but then that's it. So I am going to review a little bit. And uh, I thought perhaps Richard and Jen would be back, so I was uh, especially reviewing for Richard. But uh, I want to keep these thoughts in front of us as we're thinking about this. And then I also want to remind you that I'm really still just looking at what the Bible has to say about this. Uh, and I want us to have permission to base our beliefs on that, our thoughts on that, and our questions on that. So, um, the reminder is: Who is it that's the author of the ages and the ages to come? And so, remember: Spirit, fire, light, love, and love created, and then the same Spirit, fire, light, love, and love redeemed right? And if you haven't been here in a while, these were some symbols we used for God who created and what His purpose was and His motive to create. And uh, that, that He created as a Father and made the world so it fit and all that. And then obviously that uh, little crown of thorns represents Jesus. And so the same spirit, the same fire, the same light, the same double dose of love is the one that's redeemed. And now Jesus lives seated in heaven and there's that passage in Acts. So right this moment, he is ruling and reigning. And Corinthians says until uh, all his enemies are put under his feet. And then of course, there was this huge event called Pentecost where the spirit came down and the same spirit, same fire, same light, same love. And think about that. I mean, we don't think about that enough, I don't think, to to take it as seriously as it should be. Fire was engaged in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Um you know, so the the elements of of who God is are constantly showing up in every interaction, every intervention. So uh, that's there, and then there's a couple of scriptures which don't say everything, but they say they say something. Who is it that that created? Who is it that's redeeming? Who is it that's going to control the ages? So Ephesians one, uh, starting here in verse four, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, He predestined us to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intentions of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace. And then it goes on a little later in that first chapter of Ephesians, speaking about uh, suitable to an administration that would be fulfilled in time. So God actually had in His heart, in His mind, the end, the all in all, being all in all, when He was creating. And then over here, the announcement or the declaration concerning this redemption was called good news if you remember at christmas we looked at that one in Luke chapter 2 but here in John 3:16 it explains the motive behind why god sent his son for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life for god didn't send the son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him so i just want to keep that in mind and i want to i want you to be thinking about that And and then as I'm trying to give us permission to think through what the scripture does and doesn't say about hell, that this is the God we're talking about. This is the strategy. This is the redemptive plan. This is the end of time. This is all of who and what we're talking about. So review number two are the words that are used for hell. And I handed out some notes last week. I see a couple of them laying around here. Uh, The word Sheol in the Old Testament... it's used 66 times, returned 66 results, if you look for it, in, with a Greek concordance. And it's translated 31 times as grave, 31 times as hell, three times as the pit, and one times as in the depth, in the King James Bible, in the King James Bible. Uh, from 1900 forward, uh, hardly, I don't even know if there are any except the message that translates very much at all in, in the, the Old Testament as hell, it's sheol, as hell. So um we had a good discussion last week and a little bit uh, with some other folks between now and then and Sheol is a lot more complex uh condition concept than just the grave or just hell, but hell is is pretty arbitrary. So as by way of review, I don't feel compelled to try to defend in any way, shape, or form the translation of the word Sheol to hell. So If you have questions about that, we can certainly talk about it, but it's just not an area of confusion to me uh, because like I say, virtually every, uh, well, the oldest uh, translation that doesn't use it at all would be Young's Literal. And a lot of them uh, do use other things like the grave or the pit or something like that. Some of the older ones, Uh, most modern new translations don't. I'll show you that chart just a little bit. Um, Hinnom. Hinnom is an important one, and uh, it's used 13 times in the Old Testament. It is never translated hell, but that's not, that doesn't mean anything about that. It just means that Hinnom is the Old Testament word that refers to the valley that Jesus spoke about in Matthew chapter 5 when he spoke about, if, if your eye offends you, pluck it out because it's better to go there than to go into Gehenna's fire. And that is translated even up to very, very modern translations. Gehenna, the word is translated as hell. And that comes from the word Hinnom. And so there are 13 results, never translated hell, but we're going to look very closely at those tonight. And then the New Testament version of that, the Greek version of that, and and I don't know whether the Greek version is, uh, my guess is when Jesus was teaching the Sermon on the Mount, he was probably speaking in Hebrew, I I would think. I don't know. Um, but I, maybe not. He was either speaking in Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. I think that's the only ones that were kind of at his disposal at the time. Although he could probably speak any language he wanted if he just chose to. But I'm not really sure about that. Nevertheless, the way it comes to us in the scriptures is through the word uh, Gina. And it is there are 12 results, 11 hells in the synoptic gospel and one translation of hell in the book of James. And the one in James, because we're not going to cover it or get to cover it tonight, Uh, That one in James is the tongue is uh, a force that sets on fire the fires of Gehenna or of hell. So uh, all of those are translated hell. Other uh, versions, many other versions, as a matter of fact, uh, just transliterate it into Gehenna. And then Hades, there's 10 times Hades is used in the New Testament, if you look at in Greek. And in the King James, it's translated hell every time, even one time that's kind of confusing and one time that's not. So uh, most, most of the time in other translations, that's just translated Hades. Sometimes it's translated the grave, I think. And then one time, Tartaru is a Greek word, uh, Tartarus. And it's a, a word drawn out of Greek mythology about the underworld. Uh, it's used one time in 2 Peter Two four in the King James translates it hell. Uh, other, other translations translate it differently. Some transliterate it. Some translate it the pit. Something that I think the Tartaru thing uh, may in fact have some relationship to is in Revelation when it talks about that angel that comes down and uh, takes the the serpent and chains and puts him in the abyss. And I think those are probably more related than than what our common. Uh, thoughts about hell is. So anyway, those are those resources. And now for our third review, it's this situation. So this little chart, and I cleaned it up a little right and tried to simplify the coding. Um, so what you see here, uh, if I go over here and I'll point out a little bit. So, whoop, can't do that. Never mind. I'll point out it from over here. Sorry, Sterling. <laughs> that was impossible. <laughs> Put the mic two inches in front of the speaker. Uh, uh, yeah, I could go back and do it that way, but that's okay. I'll just point here. So, this is uh, 18 different Bibles. Um, not all of them have both Old and New Testaments, so that skews statistics a little bit. But this is if, if you do a search, like I've got an electronic uh, search capacity on my Bible program, I can do searches for words in specific translations, and so that is the result on this chart. So you can see the King James in the Old Testament, the word hell returned 31 search results, 31 different scriptures, or 31 different instances in scripture. A couple of scriptures were duplicated. Uh, The New King James, that's reduced to 19. They didn't translate nearly as many of the Sheol's into hell in in the New King James Version. The New American Standard has zero Old Testament. And you see a whole bunch of zero Old Testaments Matter of fact, the only other two that have any in them are the New Living Translation, which has one, and it's in Job, I believe. And then this thing down here on the bottom, kind of in that specialty category, is the um, uh, Word Study New Testament, and it has definitions after the, the Greek word. And so it's sort of like the Amplified Bible in that it'll, it'll use a lot. So th- that isn't really too relevant to anything. Uh, But so you can tell there's a dramatic difference in the use of the word hell in the translations in the Old Testament. There's only four that have any and the vast majority have zero. Then the center category of things here is these are versions of the Bible that have no use of the word hell. They don't translate Sheol hell. They don't translate Gehenna hell. They don't translate Hades hell. They don't translate anything hell. Uh, And of course, there's not that many verses that you can translate hell, even if you do it like the King James does. There's just 31 in the Old and 23 in the New. So uh, Young's Literal is probably the oldest, or it is the oldest among those. It was 1860-something. I wasn't able to get the details out of the English Standard Version. No, the English Revised Version. That's the first translation major translation after the King James. Some of the guys that I read that lived in the late 1800s, they use that and they use the King James and go back and forth. I haven't been able to find a searchable version of that and don't have one in my uh, thing. So I don't know what that one did, but uh, so the oldest one that I have access to is Young's Literal and that was like 1860 or something like that. Whereas King James was translated in the early 1600s. So, those four, the complete Jewish Bible, uh, the uh, Bible in basic English, and the world English version, they don't have the word hell, hell in them at all. And then these over here are just some interesting ones, the amplified, uh, easy to read version. The message is the one that has the most, well, actually it's sort of it's a tie, I guess, 50, what would that be, 54 to 54. So the message is tied with the King James <laughs> in putting hell in there, which of course it's paraphrased. So it's not a word study type Bible. Anyhow, again, this is the reason that I don't feel like we need to spend a lot of time, although I'm willing to tackle it if we, if we think we do, I don't feel like we need to spend a lot of time defending the non use of the word hell in the old Testament. The new Testament's much more, uh, much more both ways, as you can see. So there's 13 or 14 instances all over the place. And the reason that the New King James is so much bigger at 23 than the averages of 13, 14 or whatever is because it, it translates both Hades and Gehenna as hell. Whereas almost all the other translations only translate Gehenna as hell. They don't translate Hades as hell. And that's why the difference between the 23 and the 13, for instance, makes sense. Okay, so now tonight, we're going to focus on Gehenna in the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. And here's my thinking about why. Because uh, without a lot of evidence to focus on the, the word hell based on translation in the Old Testament for Sheol, then the real link to understanding the word hell as Jesus used it particularly, because like I say, most of those, the 10 of those are ones Jesus used and one of them was just the one James referred to. So um, the, the real link to understand what Jesus was saying and what the people heard was in those verses, in, primarily in Matthew, where he talked about Gehenna or the fires of Gehenna or the Valley of Gehenna or something like that. Does that make sense? All right. I know this is kind of weird too. And so if you have questions, I'm wide open to them. Um, we'll give it a try. So we're going to, I felt like it was important to look at at the Gehenna question. So I've got to, I've got to show you something here so that you'll understand a context because there really is some cool stuff that can be discovered out of this. So I don't have this up there. I think I've got it somewhere on one of the little subtitles, but I want to read to you from uh, 1 Samuel chapter eight. Anybody familiar with what the story is about 1 Samuel eight? That is when Samuel got old, and he appointed his two sons, and his two sons were jerks. And they, uh, they perverted justice, they took bribes, and uh, I don't know what else they did. It just says, here, I'll read it to you instead of making it up, making it sound worse than it is. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel, Now the names of his firstborn was blank, no, (laughs) to protect the innocent. I'm just kidding. The Bible doesn't ever protect anybody. (laughs) The names of his first son was Joel and the name of the second, Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his way, but turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. Now, I want you to think about another major event in the history of Israel that kind of sounds like this, that the, that the people made a choice. Can you think of one? What would it be, Beggy? Saul was one, yeah, but... Back up even more. At the base of Sinai, the children of Israel said, "Yeah, we want Moses to represent us. We don't want to have you talking to us, God." I think this really is kind of the same spirit, and it kind of led to the same problem. So, um, so they said, "Behold, uh, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like the other nations, like all the nations." But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to the Lord's reply. Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods. So they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. So let me read just a little bit more because this is the whole context, I think, to understand the references to the Valley of Hinnom for the most part. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked him for a king. He said, This will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of the fifties, and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest, to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your field and your vineyard, and of your groves and give them to his servants. He will take a 10th of your seed and of your vineyards and give it to the officers and his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a 10th of your flocks and for yourself will become his servants. Then you will cry out in the day because your your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, nope, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, I think it's fascinating that the primary thing that they heard and the primary thing they thought was that we need somebody to fight our battles for us. And they were willing, apparently, either blindly or consciously, to trade all of that other stuff, which turned out very much to be true. But one thing that they, they couldn't have counted on that did happen. And it's the core of what we're going to look at when we look at the, the significance of the Valley of him The one thing that happened was that they really did get led by these kings to be just like the nations around them. Okay? So, keep that in mind, and then we'll look here. Now, the first three instances are simply Hinnom in the Bible being a point of geography. And they're all three mentioned for essentially the same thing in two different instances. So this one in Joshua 15:8, it's mentioned two times. So two out of the 13 are in this verse. And there's only 13 times. So it's not like it's impossible to get a handle on what Hinnom is referred to in the scripture. And the border went up by the valley of the son of Hinnom unto the south side of the Jebusite. The same is Jerusalem. Meaning Jebusite is the name, was the name of Jerusalem before it was Jerusalem. But by the time this was being written, it was Jerusalem. Uh, and the border went up to the top of the mountain that lieth before the valley of Hinnom westward, which is at the end of the valley of the giants northward. So this is just identifying the land. And this particular one happens to be the land from, uh, the tri- for the tribe of Judah. So, what, so you fully understand what's being said here. When Joshua got across the border, it was time to divide up the land and give it to the inheritance. And remember, the two tribe, the half tribes, stayed on the other side, and then they came over here. So, Judah, if you look on a map, and I was trying to get a map up, but I got too much information tonight anyway, and it would been long. Judah's a big chunk of land. It runs all the way from the sea, uh, the Mediterranean Sea. It runs across and kind of wobbles a little bit. Then it dips down and circles around and includes Jerusalem. And then it comes down and then it runs over a little bit to uh, the Dead Sea. And then it swings down to, I don't know, quite a ways down and back out. So it's the largest allocation of land, I think, if I was able to figure it out. It's the largest allocation of land the tribe of Judah is. And it's that whole big chunk that runs right around and embraces Judah. And you'll notice that what it's saying is that uh, the border went up by the valley of the Son of Hinnom. And that valley is literally just runs west and south under the ancient uh, boundaries of Jerusalem. And it still does today, and it's still included in that area around, around Jerusalem. And then there's another valley. So if, uh, if I'm, let's say the north's up this way, so this makes this, what would that be, west? Okay, so here's Jerusalem. And then the Valley of Hinnom runs right down like this. And then right over here is a thing called the Valley of Kidron. And it starts down at a spring, down at El Rabath or something like that. And the spring runs up this way. And um, if you remember, that's where Jesus went after John 14, 15, 16. He went to the Valley of Kidron. It's where you know the arrest took place and so on. And that was a familiar place of his. So those two valleys shape the bottom of the city of Jerusalem. And they're geographic markers for two tribes, or as part of two tribes. Now, Judah is so big that there's like a 180 different things mentioned in Joshua, points of reference that allow you to pinpoint it all the way around the map. But the next one is uh, the border of the tribe of Benjamin. And Benjamin, so here's Jerusalem, here's the the Valley of Hinnom, here's Kidron Valley. Benjamin butts up to the Kidron Valley, and goes up the east side of Jerusalem a little bit, and goes over to the uh, the I think it's the Dead Sea. And it's 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 small, so like it's about that big. the City of Jerusalem's about that big, and Judah's about this big. But same exact situation. The Valley of Hinnom acts as a geographic marker. And it's in there twice. Uh, So, and the border came down to the end of the mountain that lieth before the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is in the valley of the giants in the north and descended to the valley of Hinnom to the side of Jebusy on the south and descended to Enrogel, which is where the springs for the Kidron comes from. So anyway, it it was that. Now we jump up to Nehemiah for the third reference. Nehemiah, uh, as you remember, is the story after Israel came back from Babylonian captivity. Well, it had been so devastated in the 70 years of captivity that they had to do the same procedure. They had to give out lots and various things for different people. It wasn't exactly the same as the tribes, but what this is all about, where it says, Zenoah, Adalam and the villages of Lashish, and the fields thereafter, and the villages thereof, and they dwelt in Beersheba. So when when Nehemiah uh, and Ezra got the people back there, certain ones of them were like hired to live in Jerusalem. And there were a certain number that were designated under the direction of the Lord and the priest, a certain number were designated from each of the tribes. And everybody else that wasn't in that tribe, or that was in that tribe, but didn't get that lot, lottery ticket, that ticket to come into the city of Jerusalem, lived in the towns and villages around it. And that area was designated by uh, geographic markers, just like the original thing was, although they weren't exactly the same. But that's the uh, the f- the fifth use of the Valley of Hinnom in the Bible is to just be a marker for where these people lived uh, outside. And, and it, this particular place happened to be people that were assigned to the tribe of Benjamin. So, and then they would go and go into Jerusalem and they would work and stuff. But So what can we learn about the nature of hell from that? Nothing. (laughs) Yeah, nothing, nothing. Except that the Valley of Hinnom was a place. And it was a place of record in Israel, right? It was one of 170 points of record that that established the border of the land of Judah. It was one of a lot less, like maybe 15, that established the boundary of Benjamin, and it was one of the places that were assigned to the refugees that came back, or repatriates, probably a better word, that came back from the Babylonian captivity. So Hinnom's not a theory. It's not a doctrine. It's not a worship aspect or anything. It's a place. So that's what we can learn from those three. Now there's only, like I say, there's only uh, 13. So Five of those 13, it's just a place. So if it's just a valley by Jerusalem, why did we translate it as hell? Well, because it's named after a man and his sons. And it has always been named that ever since they came in and took over. It was called the Valley of Hinnom. Hinnom was a Jebusite. And before they drove the people, before Joshua came over and they drove the people out, So, there would be no concept or even word to name that valley hell back when Joshua took over, because there's no word for that in any of those languages, including Hebrews. Uh -uh, no, it's it's never translated as hell in the Old Testament. Yeah, and 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 so what I'm what I'm that's a good question. the simple answer is because it wasn't hell. It was the Valley of Enum. It was a geographical place that still exists today. But that'll lead us to later. Yeah? You don't have to. <laughs> so another way to ask a similar question is, why are you even talking about it? But, well, that's what I get paid for. Oh, okay. <laughs> No, we're not there yet. (laughs) All right, so to recap, I'll go over all this again. These five verses out of the 13 times it's mentioned in the Old Testament, it's just a place. It designates a place that marks something. Now, why are we talking about these five places? Because I want you to understand that there's only 13 places, period, from which meaning can be derived about this, that Jesus spoke about. So there's no excuse for it to be translated in the New Testament hell if this was the only references we had in the Old Testament. It would have to come from some other place. Okay? That's, that's a little into the weeds in ahead of myself. All right, now we're getting into the part that might make more sense. So uh, all the rest of the uses of Hinnom, all of them, so uh, five, 13 minus five, what does that leave? Seven, eight, eight. All right, so eight of the 13, oh yeah, I've got it on the board, literally are used to articulate the history of idolatry in Egypt. I mean, in, uh, in Israel. Eight of the 13 times, okay? So I read the first Samuel thing. These, this became a point of idolatry, a reference point for idolatry, because of the behavior of the kings of Israel, starting with Ahaz, I think. Now, the first one chronologically, though, where it's mentioned is in 2 Kings 23.10. And the he there is talking about Josiah. You guys remember Josiah? He became king of Israel when he was eight years old. And he reigned, yeah, he did. He reigned for 31 years, and he, um, he followed the Lord with all his heart. He lived and reigned through the life of two prophets, the tail end of Isaiah's uh, role as the, one of the chief prophets in Israel, and the beginning of, and, uh, well, most of, but the beginning of Jeremiah. And so there's only a few other passages here, and three or four of them are going to be in Jeremiah, prophetically, that mention Hinnom. But it started here with, so in St. Kings, it says he, and that he is Josiah, uh, and this was probably when he was about 20 years old. I could remember he became king when he was eight. Uh, He defiled Topeth. Now, Topeth was a place in the valley of Hinnom that had been devoted to the worship of Baal or Molech. And some say that those are the same thing. But he defiled Tophet, which is in the valley of the children of Hinnom, so that no man might make his son or daughter to pass through the fire to Molech. Now, I looked into this pass through the fire to Molech, and there's people that argue, very few but the the majority, uh, the contention is that these, this was a practice that the Israelites picked up from the Amorites and which are the Jebusites were part of it that were living there, and they just went into just gross total idolatry, and it wasn't just the causing their children to either pass through the fire or be burned in the belly of this idol or whatever the case is, uh, there were other things that went on in the history of of. Josiah is amazing because he, he, he came from a rough family, <laughs> to say the least, and he was made king after his father was killed by his own servants. And he was made king at eight years old. And by the time he was 16 or so, he was already doing these amazing reforms. And he, uh, he took money and he sent it to these builders, to go in and repair the, te- the temple. This is the temple of Solomon. And they discovered a book of the law. And that book of the law was read. And that's where he tore his clothes because he realized we have not been doing this at all. And he just repented as a young man and led the nation to rebuild. And so he did stuff like he had them take everything, because by this time, Uh, They had actually dedicated a bunch of utensils in the worship system of Solomon's temple to worship Baal. And he took all those and he cut them all up and he melted them all down. And there were places to worship under every tree on every high hill that was around Jerusalem. He tore all those down. He had all the priests of Baal killed and burned. He was serious. A serious reformer. So he reigned for 31 years. And this one, he uh, he he uh, tore it down, he destroyed it. And then he spread defiling ashes over the places so that the children of Israel couldn't go there to be tempted to do that again. Because, you know, you can't touch a dead person. You can't go where there's a dead body, all this kind of stuff, even though they'd been... Uh, idolatry. Now, I want to remind you guys of one thing, especially those that have been here for a while. Remember when we were talking about how N.T. Wright focused on the fact that idolatry was the essence of the thing that that Messiah had to come and save? It's not just sin, it's idolatry. And idolatry was rampant in this time. And it was so bad that one of the things that that, uh, Josiah did is he had his priests and his his chief priests and so on, go to the prophet, and they went to this prophet lady, and say, what, you know, what, inquire of God for me. What do we need to do in the midst of this reformation? Uh, he reinstituted Passover again, which happened again later. But God said, because his heart is so tender towards me, I am not going to let any of the evil things that are going to come on Jerusalem come during his time, but I'm not going to take them away either. So because of his righteousness, they're going into captivity. They're getting beat, all this kind of stuff. God withheld that. Then he was killed in battle. And the person that took over for him ruled for something like three months. And it just went downhill fast after that. So this is from 2 Kings. Now the next verses are from Second Chronicles. And it goes back a little earlier. But do you get the point? The Valley of Hinnom was a focal point for idolatrous worship and became an object of the judgment of Israel, along with the rest of the idolatry. All right, so this is 2 Chronicles. This is about Ahaz. Uh, Ahaz was the father... Eh, Backed up a little bit. I got my card here on these. Let me read them to you real quick. Okay, so... The first king in Israel that went really bad after that situation where they wanted a king, but the one that went really bad, i mean, like Saul didn't go really bad. He was a pretty good king, but he got messed up, you know. But the first one to go really bad was Ahaz. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. He reigned for 16 years. And then after him, his son Hezekiah took over, and Hezekiah was the first to lead one of these major revivals, Uh, He was 25 and he reigned for 29 years. So there was this 45-year section starting with Ahaz that, and and, and this is all leading up to the captivity of Jerusalem and Israel by Babylon. Okay, so Ahaz uh, reigned for 16 years and he too burned incense in the valley and he burnt his children in the fire. Now it's fascinating because there is a story Uh, in Jewish literature and in Chaldean literature, because remember they were shortly getting ready to go over to, after a few years, they were going to go to Babylon, that Hezekiah, who was the son of Ahaz, Ahaz had purposed to cause him to go and be burnt in the fires of Molech, in the valley of Hinnom. And his mother, Abi is her name, anointed him, rubbed him down with the blood of the salamander. And as a result of that, the fires didn't touch him. He survived the ritual and then grew up and became the king after his father was killed. Good for salamanders. Anyway, fascinating. I I don't know. I don't know enough about salamander biology and I would never throw one in my wood stove to see if it burns. Anyway, Hezekiah uh, had a, a fairly long and, and healthy career. He also, re, he was the first to reinstitute Passover because it was gone. There was a lot of beautiful things that he did. But you remember at the end, he was nervous and he felt like he was sick and he got a promise from God through Isaiah. Uh, no, the the, you know, Shadow went back up the stairs and you're going to live and so on. Anyway, so he was able to, he was um, 25 and he reigned for 29 years. So What would that make him? 50 something. His son was Manasseh. And Manasseh reigned a long time because Hezekiah had gotten the, the country back in shape and it was worshiping God. But Manasseh, he was 12 years old when he took over after his father died. And he reigned for 55 and he didn't do good. Yeah. 55 years. He didn't do good. But the reason his reign was so much longer than some of the others who didn't do good is in the middle of all this. So the problem that Israel had under Manasseh's reign, because he also did all this, this stuff. I don't know if there's any. Let's see if there's a verse there. I think there is. Yeah. So this is Manasseh. He caused his children to pass through the fire in the valley of the sons of Hinnom also. And he observed times, used enchantments, used witchcraft, dealt with familiar spirit and wizards, and wrought much evil in the sight of the Lord. So the, the judgment that manifest against Israel was from Assyria. And they came down and they captured people. They took 200,000 young men and they took hundreds of thousands of this and that and the other. Anyway, that was kind of the, the situation. Hi there. And, and so always when this idolatry took place, captivity and exile of certain people took place. Now in the midst of that, A series of circumstances. Manasseh cried out to the Lord. Cried out to the Lord, and it said the Lord heard him and was pleased with his repentance, and he cut off this attack and and defeated this group of Assyrians. Uh, Sennacherib, I think, was one, but anyway, cut him off. And it says Manasseh then realized that God was the Lord. And the latter part of his reign was significantly better. He worshipped the Lord, and he wasn't instituting all his stuff, but. He had already re all these high places of worship. And so people were still worshiping out there. They were still burning incense out there, but they were doing it to Jehovah, which was not the way Jehovah prescribed it to be. And the temple was still, the uh, temple of Solomon, or that Solomon had built, was still quite polluted in various processes and stuff like that. But Manasseh, he, he did repent and there was a, an issue. So then the next king that came along was... Uh, Ammon, and Ammon was the father of uh, Josiah. Ammon only reigned two years, and he did bad stuff and did the whole thing. Then came Josiah, which we saw in 2 Kings, and there's a whole bunch about every, all, all the details that he does, but the Valley of Hennem isn't mentioned in him, but all, all the details that he did in uh, 2 Chronicles as well. Then, uh, so he reigned for 31 years and then he was killed in battle. And when he came back, his body was brought back and he was buried in Jerusalem with his fathers. And then the next king was Joaz. He was 23 years old and he reigned for three months. And what his, the end of his reign marked was the beginning of the influence of foreign nations. So before Israel went into captivity, every time this idolatry issue came up, the the influence and this vulnerability to nations around them grew. So the king of Egypt, or the pharaoh of Egypt at the time, Echdelon, I think was his name, or Egolon, something like that. He came in and just said, we don't like you. And they booted him out and killed him. So then Jehoiakim, who was his son, he was... uh, I guess uh, he was installed. No, he wasn't his son. He, but Jehoiakim was somebody else. He was installed and he reigned for 11 years under the thumb of the Egyptian pharaoh. And so it was the worst possible kind of scenario that Samuel had told, that the Lord had told the people and Samuel had told the people. So now your king has got our whole nation under the rule of the Egyptians again. It's horrible, Right? All right, so after Jehoiakim, there was Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin was also eight years old. So Jehoiachin uh, was eight years old, was made king, and lasted three months and 10 days. Again, because of this influence. And so then, by this time, a deal had been made between the pharaoh of Egypt and a dude whose name you'll recognize called Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar was besieging Jerusalem and he had created a pact with Egypt so that they wouldn't conflict over this. And he took one of his relatives, and I forget his name, some uh, Persian sounding name, renamed him Zedekiah and installed him as king of Israel. So the end of their desires was that it wasn't even one of their own people. And so all of this, all of this total, everything I've told you was 155 years. Uh, but after the reforms of Hezekiah and so on, it was, it was about, uh, let's see, what was it? 88 years or something like that that included all those other kings and all that other idolatry. Now, the point of all this is more relevant than the first three. The point of all this is that this was probably one of the ugliest times in the history of Israel. They sacrificed children. They ate the meat of pigs in the temple. You know, we've heard about that under the Epiphanes and all that kind of stuff, Antiochus Epiphanes and all that, but it, it happened under the direction of Israelis. And so... That's this. Then the only other uh, references to the Valley of Hinnom are these in Jeremiah. And they're all about this time from Josiah forward. So Jeremiah started to prophesy in the 18th, I think, year, maybe 13th year of Josiah and prophesied all the way up to the fall of Babylon and the capture by Nebuchadnezzar. So he took over the head prophet role from Isaiah. And Isaiah went to the Bahamas. Now, I don't know what happened to Isaiah at the end, but he probably would want to after the tenure that he did. Um, anyway, so here's two, the first two, and they've built the high places of Tophet, which is that, that area where they built up those altars to Molech, which is in the Valley of Sons. of to burn their sons and daughters in the fire. And then the Lord added this in the prophecy of Jeremiah, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart. It's important, I want you to remember that because it gets said a couple of times. Therefore, behold, the days come, says the Lord, that it shall no more be called Topat, nor the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, for they shall be- bury in Toput till there be no place. And this is where we begin to learn that the valley of Hinnom turned into a big cemetery and that it was a, a, a messy place, okay? Then in Jeremiah 19, Another prophecy comes, it says, go forth unto the valley of the sons of Hinnom, which by the entry of the east gate and proclaim there the words which I shall tell thee. Remember, he's talking to Jeremiah, a prophet. Therefore, behold, the days come, says the Lord, that this place shall no more be called called Tophet, nor the valley of the sons of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. Now, this relates directly to the reputation of the valley of Hinnom. It also relates directly to the meaning that the children of Israel, that Jesus was talking to, that his disciples and all this, because they all knew this. This history was taught. We can't, I mean, you can imagine the Pharisees, picture the ones in, in, uh, in The Chosen, you know, all formal and all authoritative. We cannot do what our forefathers did in the Valley of Hinnom, right? Because... They turned on God. They started sacrificing pagan sacrifices. They brought uh, sacrificial practices to pagan gods into Solomon's temple. It's going to be called the Valley of Slaughter. It was horrible. Now, this is the last scripture, That number 18, or number 13, I mean, the last scripture that says anything about the Valley of Hinnom before Jesus speaks about it in the New Testament, okay? And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the sons of Hinnom, to cause their sons and daughters to pass through the fire into unto Molech, Molech, which I commanded them not, neither came it into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. So this fifth mention of Gehenna is, it's in a very large context. It's about the it's about the sin of Israel. It's about the idolatry of Israel. And it's about the exile, the punishment of exile, separation, captured. By the end of Jeremiah's time, Israel was in captivity in Babylon. And uh, you know the whole story about that, and I don't. And I'm certainly not an Old Testament scholar, so this has been fascinating to me. But there is a bigger context that that I want you to see in relationship to this Valley of Hinnom. Yes, Ronnie. This is the first time you've used the word Gehenna in your fifth mention of Gehenna. Mm-hmm. We, we haven't talked about Gehenna yet. Well, We're we, have. Talking about we have. We have Jesus said Gehenna and it's translated hell. So when Jesus was referring to Gehenna, he meant the that valley. Topa, which was... No, no, he meant the, the the he meant the valley. He meant the valley. Anyone else confused, or it's just me? Of the yeah, Hebrew I would word. Assume, I would assume that, but Larry just sort of snuck it in here and we hadn't talked about Gehenna. It's the first, it's the first time you've, you've referenced Gehenna. I know. But you've, you've emphasized the point that they're the same. Or are they the same? Do you think they're the same? They're not the same word, but they're, they're referring to the same... There's a heritage out the word. Yeah. Did it, okay, maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. But the heritage thing, thats that's good. And that is absolutely true. That is absolutely true. Okay? Okay. Now, here's what I want to show you the larger context of this. So let me back up and read that again. And this should raise some questions. Uh, And they built the high place of Baal, which are in the valley of the sons of Hinnom, to cause the sons and daughters to pass through the fire in Molech, which I commanded them not. Neither came it into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Now, the context in which this verse, the last mention chronologically in the prophecies of Jeremiah, the last mention of the valley of the son of Hinnom says, is obviously related to the next verse, right? I mean, it's all... So what does it say in verses 36 through 40? And now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel concerning this city, whereof ye say, it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword and by famine and by pestilence. Now, let me explain what's happening here, because most of us don't have Jeremiah memorized. I didn't know it until I saw it, and it shocked me, and it blessed me, and I want it to bless you. All right, so this is the very next verse after this thing about the Valley of Hinnom, And so, the Lord said, the God of Israel concerning this city, Jerusalem, okay? This city, whereof you say, Jeremiah, it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. This is the Lord talking to Jeremiah. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries, whither I have driven them in my anger and in my fury and in my great wrath, and I will bring them again unto this place and I will cause them to dwell safely. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts, that they shall not depart from me. So this is after the last mention of the judgment that was shortly to lead to the capture uh, and the ransacking and the destruction of Jerusalem, to the destruction of the temple of Solomon that was torn down and burned, the destruction of the walls, right? Jeremiah was prophesying, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and he was true. But then the Lord broke in and said, I will gather them out of all countries. Whether I have driven them in my name and my anger and my fury, great wrath, I will bring them again to this place and I will cause them to dwell safely. They'll be my people and I'll be their God. Does that remind you of anything? It's the new covenant, but it's not really the new covenant out of the context. It is Hebrews chapter 8, but that comes from Jeremiah. Do you guys know where it comes from? It comes from chapter 31. Right in the midst of all of this, Jeremiah dealing with the corruption, the idolatry, the judgment, and the punishment of Israel, leading to exile. It is too. I have a plan for you. I know what I'm going to do. I know. It's fascinating. It's amazing. I I mean, I got goosebumps and started weeping and everything. I'd never seen it. Here's Jeremiah 31, 31. That's just two chapters before. I don't know how long it was uh, before that he had prophesied, or he had told Jeremiah this, and Jeremiah was prophesying it, but it says, Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. This is a comprehensive prophetic statement. It's a comprehensive declaration. It goes all the way back to the escape from Pharaoh in Egypt, led out by Moses, right? And all the way forward. And we know it goes all the way forward. Jesus lifting up the cup said, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is what father was talking to Jeremiah about. While they were on the eve of all the young men being taken away to Babylon. While they were facing a situation that God would not or could not because of his own understanding and reason, but he would not at least, rescind this. He held it off for Hezekiah. He held it off for 31 years for Josiah because of his righteousness, but it collapsed so quickly after that. In other words, the judgment was real and it was serious, but it, was, it wasn't final and it certainly wasn't Forever. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers the day I took them out of the hand to bring them in the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So, I have a closing thought. This you're welcome to agree or disagree with me over. But when Jesus said, this is just one example. When he said, do not fear those who kill the body. He's talking to his disciples, right? Matthew 10 is when he was prepping his disciples to send them out. We just saw it on the chosen a couple of weeks ago. Come on. He was sending them out and he was saying this, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul. In uh, a lot of our translations, it says in hell, but the word is Gehenna. And the word Gehenna has a heritage at the very least. I'll go with Dan's thing, but that's, that's really a good way to put It has a heritage in a very limited number of scriptures that speak of a very significant historic time in Israel of falling apart because of their seeking a king. The body and soul in Gehenna are not, because for absolute certain, Jesus didn't say hell, right? He didn't speak English, Dutch, or German. So he either spoke he either spoke Hinnom or, or, or Ben-Gay Hinnom, which is what it would be in the whole thing. Ben meaning son of, in the valley of Hinnom. Or he spoke in Greek and said Gehenna. Are not, okay, so I, I broke it up. I don't want to do that. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. He's talking to his disciples. I can't help it. He's talking to his disciples before he sends them out into the world and out into all of whatever's going on. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are, are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Now, here's what my closing thought is for my own heart. There is no way in hell that the people listening to him had an image pop into their mind about a lake or a pit full of fire with demons poking them with pitchforks that burned them, but didn't burn them up. It's just not possible. They thought about the Valley of Hinnom. They did. There's no other reference for them. It was still 400 years before the word hell even made its way into any theological discussions. Now, in Second Temple Judaism, there was definitely stuff about punishment and fire, and there was definitely stuff about how long it lasted. and all that. So there's all kinds of questions possible. But what I'm saying is that, just imagine this. He's talking to people who this word would trigger that history. And it hadn't had any discussion or time or rabbinic stuff that would have made it be something different. They would have thought about the idolatry. Be careful because... Our whole nation was sucked in to child sacrifice and idolatry because of this abuse of leadership. So I don't know exactly what he was trying to say, but he was not describing what we think contemporarily of as hell. And then in the same exact sentence, the same series of breathing and making noise, he said, but are not two sparrows sold for a sin, yet yeah, not one of them falls to the ground apart from my father, but the very hairs of your head are all numbers. So do not fear. You're more valuable. He wasn't trying to instill fear. He was trying to keep them from being afraid of going out there and being accosted and being abused. So when we use this word as a source of warning toward fear, we are not doing what he did in, in this discourse. I think. I think that's pretty evident. Yes, Vicki. Okay, so if in that last scripture that you're, not the Matthew, but the other one where it says, that thought never entered my mind. Yes. God's saying, taking your children and forcing them through fire, (laughs) burning them, killing them, never, that thought never crossed his mind. So if that's the case, then how can we let the thought of eternal conscious torment cross our minds? That's a big question. (laughs) <laughs> and, yeah, so but it, I'm throwing that but, one out there because I want to know. again, this whole Hinnom idea, this is God's response to that. They made their sons and daughters pass through the fire in the Moloch, which I commanded them not, neither came into my mind that they should do an abomination. Right. I think that we, I think we should let that sit on us. We should let that be informed. God said that making your children pass through the fire never occurred to him. So at the very least, I'm going to be really careful attributing that to him. Because he said he never thought about it. And I know on almost a weekly basis, I attribute things to God that he doesn't do or think. But that one I'm going to be careful of. I'm not really willing to do that. Now, I have not had the time, nor taken the time, nor do I have the time today, obviously, Uh, I I haven't had the time to go forward and say, well, where did this idea come from? Because it did come from someplace. And we have to look at that. We're going to do that next week if I have brain cells left. But I really don't believe that we can escape the reality of what Vicki just asked. And I absolutely don't believe that we can pull the heritage of Hinnom out. Oop, wrong way. That we can pull the heritage of Hinnom out of this context at the end of Jeremiah. The punishment was real. The agony of Israel was real. The captivity of Israel was real. The exile of Israel was real. As a matter of fact, it was so real and it was so bad, it could not be solved except by the coming of the Messiah. That's what we learned from N.T. Wright. So we don't have to be weak on anything like sin or punishment or fire or captivity. We don't have to be weak on it, but we don't have to surrender to a concept that could not possibly have been in the mind of the people that were listening to Jesus. Father, help us honor You as we seek to understand the references that Jesus made to the fires of Gehenna. Thank you.